1: Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. You're listening to Stories with Sapphire. I am Sapphire Sandalo. Now get cozy and open your mind because it's story time. My entire life, I've felt like I've had a doppelganger, especially in elementary school. I was constantly confused for my older sister, Sabrina. We were extremely close in age, eighteen months apart, and similar heights. I called my sister up to see what she remembered about this time in our lives, and if she remembered it impacting her in any way. I knew I mean I didn't think we looked that alike. Me neither. And- okay, remember and how she was just like you know what I'm just gonna call you Sabrina Sapphire and looking back I'm like that's kind of rude <laughs> it's like
0: can can she not remember a person's name it's yeah. like dude it's two distinct people we're not even like identical twins like I would forgive you exactly. if you're identical twins it's like you are demeaning the child and this because you are a child doesn't mean that you don't have feelings or that like you know, and you just went along with it because, you know, you're like a kid. But if you think about it, it's like you wouldn't do that to an adult. And so why are you treating like a kid that way?
1: I asked Sabrina if she could remember any times when there was a negative consequence to us being confused for each other. I do remember Remember when someone who's trying to pretend to be called and said, dad, dad. And then I got so upset. Oh, yeah, that was prom. So it was like prom night. I wasn't there that night. But I remember this happening. A few family members were at our parents' house, and an unknown number called the landline. A desperate voice on the other line said, Like, Dad, Dad, I'm in jail, this and that. And then the family member who answered the phone asked, Is that you? And the voice responded, Yes.
0: Everyone was actually, like, started to go down this train of thought of like what he could have done and shame on him and actually it was like it became the reality and i think i was really upset as a kid because i just they were just talking about all the bad things he could have been done that put him in jail and i was like never once did someone question the person it, who called if kidding? it really was him versus like oh that must not have been him because why would he be in jail
1: within seconds This anonymous caller had created a false reality among my family, that my cousin did something terrible and was now in jail. Everything turned out okay, as my family eventually realized it could not have been him. But it reminded me of why I never liked being confused for someone else, especially as a kid, when I was still figuring out who I was. In this week's episode, I'll be sharing stories about mistaken identity. First, I read a true account of a young woman who was visited in the middle of the night by a spirit that looked like her sister. Then I speak with Pete Benavides, who recalls seeing something that took the appearance of his father. Next, I share a story about a girl who kept getting blamed for things the spirit was doing in their home. And finally, Derek from the Stories After Dark podcast tells us the tale of Teresita Bassa, a woman who helped solve her own murder. Chapter 1. It's Dad. Wake them up. Submitted by Belle Venko. Dear Sapphire, I have been plagued by this nagging story that I am a little freaked out to even recall. It was the fall of 2005. I was living in Minneapolis at the time, and my parents moved back from the Philippines after they decided to retire there. They came back to the States to help my sisters out. My oldest sister, Anna, took them in, and they were all living together in a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment. Not the most comfortable. After a few months of being here in the U.S., my dad started getting sick. He was in and out of the hospital, until one day in September, I got a call from my mom to tell me to come home to California. They told me he was dying. My two other sisters from Manila, Lulu and Shannon, and their families decided to immigrate to the U.S. to be with my parents, and because Anna was the only one with a place to live, they jam-packed her apartment. Lulu with two kids, Shannon with three kids and a husband. Needless to say, it was crowded, and the bathroom was never free. I arrived from Minneapolis and wanted to stay in a hotel, but as you know, Filipinos will make you feel guilty for not staying with them. There were eight people, including myself, laying down like sardines on the living room floor at night. I was situated in the hallway, because I'm scared of ghosts, I insisted that the light be left on. At this point, my father was in the hospital and in a coma. Only my mom and Shannon were there with him. Anna was sleeping in her bedroom. Included in the sardine pile was my sister, Lulu. She had this ugly flip phone that she had next to her. In the middle of the night, it started ringing with this ringtone song called Mona Lisa, that Nat King Cole song from back in the day. Out of the eight people laying in the pile, I was the only one who was successfully woken up by it. At first, I ignored it, but it kept ringing. So I finally got up, picked up the phone. It said, unknown. I tapped my sister Lulu and said, Ate, someone is trying to call you. She sleepily took the phone from my hand, turned it off, and laid back down. I went back to my hallway spot and laid down as well. A little while later, I was woken up again from someone tapping my foot. I sleepily opened my eyes, but was kind of blinded by the hallway light above my head. Anna, whose face was shadowed because of the overhead light, said to me, It's Dad. Wake them up. I, for some reason, was too sleepy to get up. I laid back down and fell back to sleep. I woke up startled by my phone ringing. It was Shannon at the hospital. She told me to come now. I jumped up and ran to Anna's bedroom and found her sleeping. In my head, I was thinking, why didn't she wake up everyone else when she woke me up? I told her we had to get to the hospital. I packed my rental car with my family and quickly drove to the hospital that was 15 minutes away. I dropped them off at the front entrance as I parked the car in the parking lot. I ran in, took the elevator up, but as the door opened, I was stopped by one of my nieces. She told me that my father had passed. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't there. We went home after the mortuary picked him up. We were all silent, sitting on this crowded couch with one of my nieces clutching my neck. I asked Anna, Ate, when you woke me up earlier, why didn't you wake up everybody else? And why did you go back to sleep? There was a moment of silence before she said, no, why didn't you wake everybody else up when you woke me up? We went back and forth on and on because I insisted she tapped my feet to wake me up and she kept saying she didn't and that I did that to her. Yeah, so that was really weird. And later, I asked my sister Lulu about who kept calling her in the middle of the night, but she didn't know. I asked her if she made Mona Lisa her ringtone because it was Dad's favorite song. What's Mona Lisa? she asked. Your ringtone. That's your ringtone, right? Lulu really didn't recognize the song. She pulled out her phone and played her ringtone for me, and it was something completely different. I was wondering if you'd heard of things like this happening to other people, too. Maybe it was my dad who was calling and tapping me and my sister on the foot. I am, to this day, still freaked out a little bit. But I guess I did get a chance to see my dad before he passed. After all. I have heard plenty of stories of people seeing somebody visit them right before they passed. I think it's an indicator of how important having that closure is. My theory is that the one who was about to die is astrally projecting themselves to their loved ones and the desire to say goodbye is so powerful that the projection appears as a fully formed solid human being. I think it's kind of comforting to think that when it really matters you actually could be in more than one place at a time. Chapter Two, Not My Dad.
2: Well, my name is Pete Benavides, and uh, I'm from Fresno, California.
1: Pete is a fellow podcaster and horror enthusiast. When I came on his show, Halloween Never Dies, he mentioned that he had a few strange experiences when he was a kid. So I convinced him to come on the show and share them.
2: My very first one was probably when I was like three, four years old. And I we we're at my grandmother's house. It was just a family get together, and I was standing facing the fireplace, which obviously would be really weird. I know I have a couple, I have a few kids, and so if, if I saw them doing something kind of odd <laughs> out of character, it would definitely uh, wake me up. But you know, my mom asked me, "What are you doing?" You know, "What are you doing?" And I responded with, "I just saw a man run through the wall." And it, it, you know, when you get older, it's one of those things where you. You're like, did I really see that? Was my head playing
1: tricks with me? A few years later, Pete saw something else, even more puzzling.
2: One particular day, um, I was sitting in the front room uh, watching TV, and right above me, like the couch I was sitting on is against the wall, and right above me is like a window that you can see out from the kitchen into the front room. And so I'm sitting there watching TV and and I must be like seven, eight years old, but this is a very vivid memory. I look up and my dad's, you know, in a regular business suit, like working on something at the counter. And so I look at him like clear as day. It's my dad. And I go, dad, dad, I I must've said dad like 10 times being a kid. That's just what we do. You say your parents name a million times until they get your, until you get their attention. Uh, he didn't respond. And the crazy thing was he did not know me respond. It's like I wasn't even there. Like, it's like I he didn't even notice me. So the wall that separates that room, the kitchen, the front, was like, just like, I don't know, like five inches wide. It's really small. It's thin. It's thin. So I get up. I go around the corner to the kitchen, and he's gone. And that is probably the craziest experience I definitely remember having.
1: The simplicity of Pete's story is what disturbs me. To think that you're looking at someone, someone whose appearance is very familiar to you, and then realize it wasn't them at all? Then who was that in the kitchen? And why was it able to take the shape of his father so convincingly?
2: So, like... The crazy thing I've learned about like spirits really demonic spirits you know things that attack people in certain ways they prey on like aggression anger and things like that and looking back on it you know I think about a lot of those times um, I didn't have the best uh, childhood growing up and so You know there was a lot of aggression a lot of anger in my house because of my dad and so I feel like spirits could sense things like that did that play a part in it like my dad the way he was as an aggressive person and his aggressive father did that play a part I personally think that it was a spirit that manifested itself uh, into my father's shape now I don't know why it would do that because, like I said, once I turned the corner, it was gone, so I don't, unless it was its way of communicating that there was something here, you know, maybe it was a spirit that manifested itself in front of me, just to say, hi, we're here, but not to fully interact with me. A lot of these things can happen when somebody's passed away, you know, like a, a loved one passed away, but in this case, my dad was like fully alive, like and healthy. So, and it wasn't like a premonition or anything, like it was like full on, like my dad was there. It's almost like my memory blocked whatever happened afterwards. I don't know. Being seven, eight years old, maybe I didn't think about it too much. And I just went back to playing or watching TV. You know, I try to put it in the context of like my daughter's, my oldest is seven. And so she's very innocent. She's very like playful and happy. I almost wonder like if she saw something like that, would she just go back to doing whatever she was doing? And so I think that's probably what I did.
1: These experiences have shaped the way Pete raises his kids.
2: I'll definitely be listening to my daughters if they ever come to me and they say they experience something like I don't want them to ever think they can't come to me and you know I want to make sure that they have a voice and I'm here to listen to it. There's so much out there in the world that we need to open our minds to and I think when you put a block on that on a kid, I think that affects them as they get older because then they go well, we learned about this, but then we were told it's not real. So it almost becomes, in that way, it becomes like a story. And a lot of stories, as a kid, you learn, like Dr. Seuss, Three Bears. You know, you uh, you know, you learn these stories aren't real. And so what happens is it manifests into it just being a story, into just being a fairy tale. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people is they did experience these things, but because of what they were taught growing up. They were like, no, but this can't be because I was told this one way. Um, And so I think it's just important to make sure that we keep an open mind to this, just like we do with anything. And I know that that's something that I've instilled in myself and I'll make sure to instill in my children as well, just to have that open mind.
1: To learn more about Pete's work, visit the links in the show notes. Before I became a podcaster and paranormal investigator, I used to be a full-time animator and character designer. And podcasts kept me company while I drew, especially paranormal podcasts. One of my favorites was Jim Harold's Campfire. I would actually be shocked if you hadn't heard of it because it's one of the OGs. In fact, it recently celebrated its 13th anniversary. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a call-in show where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Jim every day. The story topics range from ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and stories that can't be categorized. You're listening to my show right now, so I know that you love non-fictional paranormal stories. Stories involving the serial killer Ted Bundy, or a man who owned a haunted hotel, and also heartwarming stories of deceased loved ones coming back to say hello. Jim Harold's Campfire was a huge inspiration for me, so do me a personal favor and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Stories with Sapphire. Chapter 3 Angelo Submitted by Mina My name is Mina and I'm from the Philippines. So it was 2006 when we first moved into my mother's childhood home. My mom and dad decided to move back to the province after they resigned from their work. I knew from a very young age that I could see and sense things that no one else could. So by the time we moved into the house, I immediately sensed something off. From time to time, I would also see a shadowy figure going up and down the stairs. I never felt fear when the shadow was nearby, though. It strangely felt familiar, comfortable. Since I was a little kid at that time, I had a fear of the dark. My room was upstairs, and our bathroom was downstairs. Every night before going to bed, I always made sure to pee so that I would not have to wake up in the middle of the night and walk downstairs by myself in the dark. I remember one night, I was awoken by my mom, yelling and angrily calling my name. Go downstairs and go to the bathroom by yourself, she yelled. I was confused. Why are you yelling? I'm sleeping, I called back. A few moments of silence passed before my mom cried back. Go back to sleep. This happened a couple times. Then, my mom would get mad at me for running around the house because I might break something. I'm not, Mom, I would insist. I can see and hear you running around all the time. Just knock it off, okay? This was starting to get really frustrating. I was continuously being blamed for things I wasn't doing. Then, the Typhoon Andoy came. The power was out and we only had candles lit in the living room. And then I saw this shadow swaying back and forth. It was hovering over our sofa, and it seemed restless. That night when we all went to sleep in the bedroom, my mom and I heard the exact same voice say, Mom, where are you? I'm cold. We looked at each other in the faint light. Even though the sound came from outside our bedroom, we both definitely heard it. That was when my mom knew that what she was seeing running around the house was not me. As I grew older, I realized that the spirit's intention wasn't to bother us. They just wanted their mother. But for whatever reason, they were looking for her in our home. I had a friend who had the same abilities as me and they told me that there's no harm in telling the spirit that they are not welcome in our home anymore, and they needed to move on or leave. So I did just that. I decided to tell them to move on, that their mom loves them, and they needed to go somewhere happy. And it worked. I wasn't able to see them anymore, and they stopped bothering us. Then, in 2018, my tita, who's been an overseas Filipino worker for several years, decided to go home and retire. Now, our family has a fair share of paranormal experiences, given the fact that my lolas do have anting-anting and abilities such as healing and a bit of witchcraft. So we were sharing ghost stories with each other. My tita was telling me a story about my lola and a tik when they were younger. Then I told her about the spirit that lived in our house and how my mom always confused them for me because they were also a small child, always looking for their mother, but that it was no longer an issue because I helped them move on. She was silent the whole time I was talking. I noticed that she was crying. I asked her what was wrong. She told me that long ago, before I was even born, She had a miscarriage. She was six months going on seven when it happened. The baby was a boy. She named him Angelo. He was put in a jar and filled with alcohol. Angelo was never blessed by a priest, and they were unable to bury the baby in the cemetery. So she buried him inside our house, right under the sofa that we had in our living room. She was upset because she wished she could have seen or heard Angelo one last time before I asked him to move on. I didn't know what to say. I felt guilty, that I sent Angelo away. I had no idea that who he had been looking for was Maitita. But she understood. She knows there was no way I could have known. She was just grateful to know that he was okay. Before she left our home, she muttered, Angelo, son, wherever you are, mom loves you dearly. I'm always intrigued by stories that involve spirits who do not appear as the age you would think they would, like Sherry in season one and how her daughter came to her in the form of her 20-something-year-old self before she was born. Angelo appeared in the house as a small child when he never lived on Earth in that form. So do spirits choose the form they take? Perhaps Angelo took the form of a small child because that was the only reference he had. And if that is the case, is this imitation Truly, Angelo? I could get lost for days in this philosophical puzzle. But that's why I love these stories. They provide new and interesting ways to think about reality. Chapter 4 The Mysterious Case of Teresita Bassa. For our final chapter, Derek from the Stories After Dark podcast will be retelling the tale of Teresita Bassa, a famous story in the Philippines. I also guest voice on his upcoming episode, so make sure to check it out this Friday, May 14th.
3: February 21, 1977. In Chicago, Illinois, an apartment building caught fire. The firefighters traced the source to Room 15B the home of a woman named Teresita Basa. The culprit was a mattress that had been set ablaze, but underneath the mattress was the body of Teresita. Embedded in her chest was a butcher knife. She was flown to Negros Island in the Philippines for a proper burial in her native country. The detectives assigned to the case interviewed friends and acquaintances of Teresita, trying to put together the pieces. And after six months, the investigation was proving fruitless until a woman named Remy Chua came forward. She claimed that on several occasions, she had become possessed by the spirit of Teresita Basa, and she knew who murdered her. Remy explained that she would randomly fall into a comatose state. During these trances, her voice and demeanor would change entirely. Her husband would converse with her, and since Remy would never remember what was said during these trances, he would take note of what she said aloud. One time, Remy had stated, I am Teresita Bassa, and I was stabbed by Alan Showery. Alan was a technician at Edgewater Hospital, the same hospital that Teresita worked at. Remy claimed that she was hesitant to contact the police because she didn't want to, quote, appear foolish, end quote. But after entering the same trance over and over again, Remy felt compelled to call. As you can imagine, The police were not initially convinced. Remy had briefly worked at Edgewater Hospital as well. Perhaps there was some uncovered motive to her blame. So they continued to question Remy and ask her what else she knew. She said that Teresita let Alan into her home because he was her friend. And after he murdered her, he stole some of her jewelry, including a pearl cocktail ring, and gave it to his wife. The detectives decided to question Alan at his apartment. He admitted to knowing Teresita, but claimed he had never been to her place. Then he changed his story and said that he actually had gone to her apartment to fix her TV, but left immediately afterward. The detectives, now with their suspicions on high alert, noticed the pearl ring around Alan's wife's finger. They searched the apartment and uncovered other pieces of jewelry that were later identified as Teresita's by her family. Now backed into a corner, Alan confessed that he had known Teresita from work. She knew he was struggling financially, so she would tip him for assisting her with errands and other tasks. Under the guise of fixing her TV, he showed up at her apartment with the intention of robbing her. He ended up doing much more than that. Alan was
1: sentenced to 14 years in prison. Now that we're older and live in different cities, my sister and I don't get confused for each other as often. So I had pretty much forgotten about that era of our lives. And even when we are, it doesn't bother me as much because now I have a much better understanding of who I am. Although I now know not to leave my sister alone at a booth when I'm at a convention.
0: And I remember I was sitting at your booth and had all of like your posters and banners and all these kids came running up to me and saying like, oh my God, Sapphire, Sapphire, can you sign this for me? And I just looked at them and I was like, oh my God, I don't even have the heart to tell them that I am not Sapphire.
1: Thank you for joining me today. If you like what you heard and would like to support this independently run show, consider becoming a member of my Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash sapphire to see the different tiers and perks, like live watch parties or private tarot readings. And don't forget to subscribe to youtube.com slash sapphiresandalo, where I post an animated spooky story every other week. If you'd like to submit a story, send it to storieswithsapphire at gmail.com. Salama and good night. Stories with Sapphire is created and produced by me, Sapphire Sindalo. Music written by Sapphire Sindalo. Special thanks to Belle, Pete, Mina, and Derek. For more information on this episode and my guests, visit storieswithsapphire.com.